2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let me read this morning verses 1 through 8. Later in the message, we'll look at a couple of passages in the book of Revelation, if you want to note that or or mark that with your finger. But for now, let me read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord is already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Amen. This is the Lord's word. Let's ask for his help. Father, help us to understand, to apply, to obey your word, and to follow you. And may Jesus Christ be central in all that is said. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on problems in the Old Testament. It's talking about some of those problematic areas in the Old Testament, such as the conquest of the Canaanites, the date of the Exodus, or the destruction of Jericho. And when I mean problematic, those who don't accept Scripture's accuracy, this is some of the places they often go to in order to raise questions about the Bible, historical accuracy or ethical accuracy, what have you. These are some of the areas that are often criticized by those who don't accept the accuracy of the Bible. And so the goal of the paper was to expose the student to those. We we want future preachers to be aware of these areas and and to formulate a response, to know how they might answer some of those objections and defend the Bible's integrity. So I did the work. I turned the paper in, and I look forward to seeing my grade. I assume things would go pretty well. Well, when the teacher handed out the graded papers, he paused at my seat and he says, you know, you you did well on the paper, but you didn't mess up on one of the problems. I thought, well, what do you mean? And he pointed at my second heading, the second problem I addressed, which was entitled the parable of the mustard seed. Now, if you remember where that is, that is a parable that Jesus told In the New Testament, and this paper was on problems in the Old Testament. Dale, don't make this same mistake, okay? And as I sat there staring at the heading, I thought it was embarrassing. And I I do this, I to this day don't know how I started writing on a problem in the New Testament when it was a problem assignment for the Old Testament. How did I make such an obvious mistake? Well, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes to correct misinformation on something that should be obvious 
to the Thessalonians. And that is on the nature and the timing of the Lord's return. Now, why should the truths that Paul discusses here be obvious to the Thessalonians? I mean, after all, we said some of the things in this chapter are hard to understand. Well, they should be obvious to the Thessalonians because according to Paul, he had already taught them these things. Look at verse 5 again. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things. And now you know what is holding him back. Paul writes what he does here, not to communicate new information, but to remind the Thessalonians of what he had already taught them. You know, sometimes when we are troubled, the best thing God does is not give us new information, but remind us of what we already know. God often chooses not to explain the unknown, think of his interactions with Job, but to remind us of what we should know and what we should be doing even as we wait for clarity to emerge. In other words, Paul wrote what he did here to comfort this church that was troubled. And the comfort he offered them was a reminder of what they already knew. Now, that's going to be a little bit of a challenge for us because, as we've already indicated, some of what Paul thought was obvious to the Thessalonians has not proven to be obvious to us. But we will do our best to bring clarity to what Paul says. And then, as we focus our attention, we can focus even on what is not disputed, but rather the foundational truths, the clear truths that bring comfort, that bring guidance to God's people in times of difficulty and deception. So last week, we we started getting into the meat of the passage. We we looked closely at Paul's statements in verses 3 and 4, where he discusses two events that must take place before Christ will return. The false teachers had told them Jesus has already come in some kind of spiritual or invisible manner. Resurrection's already taking place, some kind of new spiritual existence. And Paul says, no, let me remind you of the visible events that will happen before Christ returns, which will itself be a visible manifestation. We'll look at that probably next week. The two events that Paul described were widespread rebellion against the faith and the appearance of a lawless one who fights against God and his people. Those events must happen. Now, where we spent the book of our time last week was highlighting, we went into the book of Daniel, and we went into the book of Revelation and Mark 13. Other passages that show us in biblical history, the events Paul describes have on one level already taken place. There's a, there's a fulfillment of these things that has already begun and has continued throughout biblical history. And those provided the pictures that allowed Paul to paint this image of what will occur before Jesus comes again. 
before the Lord appears, there will be times of tribulation and distress. That's what the Old Testament prophets anticipated. The day will come of tribulation and distress. And what the Bible shows us is that those times have occurred before and they will occur again. In fact, we often ask, okay, are we in the last days? You you look around at things that are happening. Are these the last days before Jesus returns? Well, Peter said on the day of Pentecost, only a few weeks after Jesus rose again, when the Spirit was poured out on the church, he says, this is what Joel anticipated in the last days, God says. I'll pour out my Spirit. So on one level, we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. The last days are when God acts to save his people, and as he brings about his salvation, there will also be times of tribulation and distress. They'll run side by side until the Lord appears. And that's the picture we really tried to paint last week. Look at how these things have already happened. Look at how they continue to happen. Now, what I want to do today is finish looking at that overview, return to the idea that these events are ongoing, and then look ahead to the final manifestation of these events, what Paul in particular focused on here in Second Thessalonians. And if there's one thing I want you to notice, again, we'll get into some of the details today, but, but if you could focus on this one thing, I think this will help. Focus on who it is that controls all these events. Because that will tell you what you can do. That will tell you how you should respond. So Jesus is coming, and until he does, the truth I want to focus on today is that God will control the rebellion around you. God will control the rebellion around you. So we've looked already at verses 3 and 4. We're going to focus today on verses 5, 6, and 7. Now what Paul does in verses 5, 6, and 7, he expands on what he said in verses 3 and 4. So again, in verses 3 and 4, that's where he said the rebellion is coming and the lawless one is coming. So in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, he tells us here is how those events Come to pass. So look first at verse 6. Let's begin there. Paul says, And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So big idea, Paul speaks here of some kind of force that restrains the lawless one and holds him back. He cannot be revealed until the proper time. And when that time comes about, then this force will cease. It'll be taken out of the way and the lawless one will be revealed. Now, I will tell you who I think or what I think that restrainer is in just a moment. But I don't want you to miss one detail that Paul gives at the beginning of verse 7, where he says the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There is an impulse towards 
lawlessness, and rebellion. And it is present. It is at work. And that's why I say Paul in this passage, he's really just plugging his electrical cord into a larger storyline, a larger power grid, so to speak. And that is the storyline we tried to present to you last week, that the Bible describes seasons of rebellion occurring over and over again until the Lord returns. In fact, that, that translation, secret power, that's not the best here. I think mystery would be better. The mystery... Of lawlessness. And the reason that's a big deal is the word mystery often in the New Testament refers to something from the Old Testament being revealed. In other words, God says in the Old Testament, this is going to be happen, and this is going to happen, and so the mystery is how it is revealed, how God begins to fulfill it. So in other words, Paul is saying, look, what was anticipated is already being fulfilled. This revelation, this power of lawlessness is already at work, even if the final man of lawlessness has not yet been revealed. And again, I would remind you that the lawlessness that the Bible highlights over and over again is mainly spiritual lawlessness, rebellion against God's commandments and against his gospel. Daniel 11.30, uh, this lawless one who's coming, he will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So these are temptations that try to get God's people to be unfaithful to their God and to turn against him in rebellion. And again, we see those temptations occurring throughout history. So, That power is already at work, and yet it's being restrained. It can't fully manifest itself until the restrainer disappears. So how should we identify this restrainer? Verse 6 describes it as, what is holding him back? And verse 7 reads, the one who holds it back. Now, what we have here, it's a vague phrase. We can agree on that, can't we? Or at least it's vague to us. Notice again, Paul says, verse 6, you know what is holding him back. So apparently the Thessalonians knew. I sure wish they could have written that down for posterity. It would have been helpful. But such is God's providence. But the fact that they knew and the fact that Paul expected it to be obvious to them may provide the clue we need to identify the restrainer. Here's, here's what I'm getting at. When you come to a vague phrase like this, it's tempting to overload it with meaning. And the reason it's tempting to do that is because it will then be very hard to disprove your claim. It's a vague phrase. And that's why several interpretations for this phrase have been suggested over the years. These include the Roman Empire, the principle of law and order and political leaders in general, the proclamation of the gospel, the presence of the church and the Holy Spirit, even the activity and person of the archangel Michael. That's all, that's just a short list of some of the suggested interpretations of this restraining force. And as you can see, since this phrase lacks specifics, 
it's easy to interpret it in all sorts of ways. Because again, there just aren't enough details in the phrase itself to rule out some of those interpretations. But while that convenience is on the one way a problem in that there aren't enough details, it also, like I said, may give us the clue we need to rightly interpret the phrase. And here's what I'm saying. In my judgment, the interpretation that is the most general has the most best case, the most plausible case of being right. And so I think that the restrainer is none other than God himself. God is restraining the lawless one. God, by the fact that he governs his creation, God controls everything. He keeps this final lawless one from manifesting himself. God's moving all the chess pieces. And when it's time... God will stop holding him back. God will step out of the way, so to speak, and the lawless one will be revealed. I think that's the best way to take a vague phrase like that. That's why Paul could say, I told you this, because it's part of the Bible storyline, and why I expected them to easily remember it. Now, here's how I might attempt then to prove this interpretation to show that it fits in very well with the picture of the end times, again, our time and the time to come, that John gives us in Revelation. That's why I said I wanted to read a few passages from that book. I'd even encourage you to turn there so you can follow what I'm tracing through the book of Revelation. We're going to look at two chapters, two passages in that book. And we're going to start with Revelation 6. And what we're going to see is that the two passages illuminate one another. They shed light on each other, which you really wouldn't expect, would you? Let's go to Revelation to make sense of another passage. But it works in this instance. So Revelation 6 will shed light on 2 Thessalonians 2, and then we can easily see how 2 Thessalonians 2 plugs into the storyline of Revelation. So start there in Revelation 6. What is this chapter about? It gives the vision of the breaking of the seven seals. And that comes from the previous vision where John saw God sitting on his throne. And God had in his hand this scroll, a scroll that had been sealed with seven seals. And you remember from that that only the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. So listen to what happens as the lamb breaks the first four seals. Begin at verse 1. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The lamb breaks a seal and out goes this white horse, which is usually interpreted as the Antichrist figure. Continue at verse 3. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. So the second seal unleashes war on the earth. Continue with verse 5. 
When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Basically, the third horse brings famine. And finally, verse 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. Death follows the fourth horse. So what do you have, friends? Four seals. And with the breaking of each seal, evil forces come and wreak havoc on the earth. If we were to read the fifth seal, by the way, that would reveal that many believers are being martyred during this time, which that plugs back into the theme of opposition against God's people that we saw in 2 Thessalonians 2. But here's the point. Here's the one thing you need to know about Revelation 6. Who controls the revelation of the horses, the lamb. He is seated on his throne. And those forces are restrained from doing activity. They cannot go forth until the lamb breaks the seals. And when he does, where do the horses go forth from? From heaven itself. From the throne of God, they ride out and do their evil on earth. In other words, not even evil can do a thing until God says, now is the time. And that is the vision God gives us there in Revelation 6. It's like when you ever watch college football. Maybe this is a dangerous illustration this morning. But you know how the players are coming down the tunnel and the coach is holding them back and they're all raring to go like a mob? That is the evil forces. And God is the coach. And when he moves, then they'll all run forward and go do their thing. God is the restrainer. He controls all evil, and none of it can go forward until he breaks the seal and steps out of the way. Now turn over to Revelation 11. One more vision here to help fill in this picture. Revelation presents us with the vision of the two witnesses. Now depending on your background, the interpretation I'm going to offer you may sound strange, but the beauty of it is that it is reinforced by what John says throughout the book of Revelation and also by some things Paul says in his letter. And so I think it has a great claim to being accurate. So let's look at the details. Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar with its worshipers. Now, at first glance, if you just read that, yes, it sounds like John is measuring a physical temple. But listen to how Paul describes God's temple 
in our time. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Ephesians 2.22 reads, In him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And if that seems too far afield, listen to what John said in Revelation 3.12. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. If you are a believer, you are a pillar in God's temple, and you never leave it. The church is God's temple. And that is what John is measuring in chapter 11. Just like God sealed his servants in their forehead, he measures his temple. The Lord knows those who are his. Now that interpretation is reinforced by the fact that John is going to switch his imagery. Excuse me. <clears throat> And describe the temple as the holy city in verse 2. Look at verse 2. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. Now again, you're thinking, okay, a city will be invaded. But listen to how John describes the holy city the next time he describes it. He describes it as believers. The bride of Christ. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. One of the seven angels came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city. John says, I saw a city, it was like a bride, and the angel said, let me show you the Lamb's bride. Look at the holy city. God's people are a holy city. And John tells us, we will be trampled for 42 months. Look now at verses 3 and 4. John reads here, or God speaks, and I will appoint my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. These two witnesses are two, or excuse me, that's the end of the quote. So here's the explanation. God says, look, witnesses, olive trees, lampstands. The witnesses are the lampstands. And in Revelation 1.20, Jesus said the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Who are these witnesses? They are God's churches. And I know it may sound strange to think that John would be describing believers here, but the imagery is consistent throughout the very book of Revelation itself. Now, here's why I took you here. Here's what I want to highlight before we go back to 2 Thessalonians 2. And conclude it there. The two witnesses, the church, the holy city, they are protected by God for a season. We saw that in verse 3. They prophesy for 1,260 days. That's a three and a half year period. 
We read in verse 2 that the Gentiles will oppress them for 42 months. Again, a three and a half year period. And despite the fact that the Gentiles trample them, and despite the fact that people don't want to hear what they say, the church cannot be stopped. Look at verses 5 and 6. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, this is where you say, gotcha, the church doesn't do things like that. We don't breathe fire out on people and consume people. No, we don't literally. But the chapter has already prepared us to read these things symbolically. And so I would ask you, who did do miracles like this? Who struck the earth with plagues? Who shut up the heavens? Who turned water to blood? Moses and Elijah did. And what was their job? They were prophets. And so some people come to this passage and they imagine, oh, well, Moses and Elijah, they're going to rise from the dead and reappear in the last days. Better reading is if the two witnesses are the church, then here's what John is saying. Church, your job is to do things like Moses and Elijah. And what was their job? They were prophets. They proclaimed the word of the Lord. They announced the good news of the gospel. They proclaimed the law and its warnings and its threats. And they offered people mercy if they returned to their covenant God. That is the job God has given us to do. And no power in heaven, earth, or hell can stop the church from fulfilling that mission. And no power will take the church's right and authority away from it to do that. Until God says, okay, here's the last force of evil, and then there's going to be some time of trouble. And let me highlight that for you before we leave this passage. Look at verse 7. Things do eventually take a negative turn. Now, when they, the witnesses, have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss, that's the one we read about last week from Revelation 13, he will attack them and overpower And kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So there's your symbolic language again. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will glow over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The church cannot be stopped in its mission. And it won't be until God does allow the beast to overpower and destroy them. That will last for three and a half days. And so compare three and a half days with 42 months. There will be this longer period where the church is triumphant. At the very end, for a short period, just three and a half days, the beast will conquer them. Unbelievers will rejoice. 
Now maybe you're wondering, okay, well, when does all this take place? When does this 42-month period start? Just note the next chapter, Revelation 12, 5 and 6. The 42 months begins after a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, was snatched up to God and his throne. What's that sound like? Jesus, in his first advent, doing his work and raising, being ascended back to heaven. Revelation says when he goes back to heaven, the 42 months start. And during the 42 months, no matter what opposition comes against the church, God takes care of it. For a season at the very end, the evil forces will overcome it. Though if we were to keep reading, by the way, in Revelation, what would we read? After the three and a half days, the church is raised, they're taken up into heaven, and judgment is poured out on their adversaries. But that all comes in the last sermon next week. Here, let me put all these puzzle pieces together. Daniel, Paul, John, here's what they anticipate. Here's the the story the Bible is telling you. There will be evil forces that wage war against the church. Those evil forces will even try to corrupt the church itself, to lead people away from faithfulness to God. That's why Paul says back in 2 Thessalonians, the the lawless one, he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He says, I can have ultimate authority. I will enter God's church. People need to be loyal to me and not to God. It tries to get the church to have its priorities all out of whack and be loyal to evil rather than loyal to God. And so again, that's why we see this rebellion in 2 Thessalonians 2, not as just rebellion or lawlessness in general, but rebellion against the Christian faith. There are those who fight against the faith. And this wicked leader, he'll utilize any power at his disposal, government or anything else, to assist in that fight. And Paul says this, that lawless force is already at work, and it will continue to be at work until God ceases to restrain it and allows it to operate at full strength against his people. So, what is the church to do? The reason I wanted to go to Revelation 11, though, I hope it's clear from many other passages that we are to do the job God has given us to do. Nothing changes that. That is what Scripture has declared clearly from the beginning. And no event changes that. That's why Revelation describes the church like Moses and Elijah. Prophesy faithfully. Announce the gospel that saves people from their sins, that would rescue them from allegiance to this evil one. And take heart. Be hopeful. The church will succeed in that mission no matter the opposition of those who don't know God. Now, the time may come when they prevail. The time will come when they prevail over the church. But that will not happen until God sovereignly brings it to pass. And when it does, by the way, that's when you know the Lord is near to return and raise his people to life and to vindicate them. So the forces are already at work, and so you're forced to conclude, well, the final removal of that restraint could happen at any moment, thus leading quickly to the return 
of the Lord. So trust that Jesus is coming. And until he does, do not, less, do not let false teachers unsettle you from truth. Be people of the book. Do not let wicked forces deter you from faithfulness, whether that's individually or corporately. Satan would tempt us to not be virtuous. We should love God supremely. We should love our neighbor as ourself. And we should take heart. God is controlling all rebellion and wickedness. And we have a job to do. We have clear direction from God. And don't let anything, discouragement, encouragement, pessimism, optimism, don't let anything take you away from God being the Lord of the church and the church fulfilling its mission. So let's pray to that end. Let's pray together.